Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and we are talking across the pond today. We've got a great author on, um, and joining me as co-host today, we've got David North Martino, and if he puts down his whiskey and gun for a minute, maybe... Oh, I'll do that right now. Yeah, yeah, none of that, none of that, you know. No. Yeah. Terrible. It's terrible, man. Um, And our guest, of course, is, one of his books is called Murder in Mind, Investigations from a Yorkshire Crime Writer's Casebook. So, Stephen Wade, well, thank you for being here, Stephen. It's a pleasure. Stephen, how did you get, uh, well, yeah, because this is the first time on the show, so maybe uh, people that don't know you, how did you become a writer? Like, what, what, what actually convinced you to start writing and publishing books? Well, people in the States won't know me unless they're scholars of Jewish-American literature, because that's, um, they're my, um, some of my first books when I was an English lecturer. And that was one of my special areas of research. So um, a very, very small number of Americans will probably know my name, those who read Saul Bellow and Philip Roth. Um, but uh, I started writing, as most people do, uh, when I was around about 20, and it was poetry. And um, I've written poetry ever since. I have a, I have a new collection out this uh, September. So poetry is always in my life. But I... I, I really became a writer in terms of earning money and uh, making a living, you know, round about the millennium. I think it was Mickey Spillane who said that there were writers and there were authors and the difference is that writers get paid. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I, I, I realized that when I got married. I thought, look, I'm going to have to write something that people actually want to read and I might even earn a few pounds from it. So. Uh, so after the academic books and so on, I, I started to write, um, well, first of all, it was very small scale. It was, you know, local history and then some, uh, uh, case books of true crime, um, all British, of course, and, uh, very regional, you know, the shires, the provinces. And, uh, you know, he was an editor who started me. In that, in that vein, because, as I say, my literature was my real subject. I was writing criticism. I did my doctorate. Actually, I did my doctorate on uh, Christopher Isherwood, who, of course, is both a British and an American writer. Um, and I, I understand he's, um, he's not that far, is he, from where you are? Santa Monica, he lived in? Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, 
so uh, my writing's always been uh, really, really mixed and multiple. Uh, it's difficult to brand me as a writer, really, to be honest, because I tend to follow enthusiasm, and I always did right from the start. But uh, that's really how I began as a, um, you know, a serious writer. I wanted to make it my my business and, and, and do far more than I'd just dabbled in before. So that will be round about late 90s, 2000, something like that. Uh, and they were just the first books, really, the first non-fiction books were, were just um, crime case books, uh, what, mostly. What, what made you go into crime? Like, why kind of select that? Like, what was it about crime that... Um... Well, it was an editor. Um, I, I'd, I'd edited a book for... Um, oh, it was, pen and, it was a pen and sword uh, book. And I'd edited just a local history book, uh, Yorkshire-based. And then the editor said, what do you want to do for us now? <laughs> and of course, I hadn't thought about it. I, so I said, well, have you got a suggestion? <laughs> and he said, well, local crime's very popular. Do you want to have a go? So what happened was I did, there's a series called Foul Deeds and Suspicious Deaths that Penn and Sword ran. I think they still do, actually. Um, but it's a long time since I've, I've, I've written one. Um, and um, I, I did seven. And looking back, you know, as you know, as you do as a writer, you, you you learn so much every day. And I look back now and think, gosh, I, I, I just I just went in there without thinking. You know, I, I didn't really know about research and I had no background whatsoever. You know, I just I was brazen and foolish. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And I said to the editor after I, I got to, I think, number three, maybe something like that, um, Said, so look, I, I'm I'm really starting to learn now about how you research crime history. You know, we're talking archives, right? Uh, and it, wherever you can, talking to people who were witnesses. So I was really starting to broaden out how I conceived of a true crime book. And um, then, what came along then? This is about 2003. So what then came along actually was I I, I finished my university teaching. Uh, full-time teaching, I should say. I went part-time. And I thought, I'm going to write, you know, most of the time and then just lecture part-time. That was the University of Hull on the Humber. Yeah. Um, and then I got a job um, as a writer in prisons. So just 30 miles away from where I live. So from that point, about 2003, I was, I was, um, I was working in prisons as a writer and then and doing my true crime books. So I moved on then from the local case studies to more um, more universal uh, crime themes, if you like. And of course, I was uh, I was working with um, uh, you know every type of offender you could imagine, really. So I really did my learning then, you know, behind bars. <laughs> I did. I really learned a lot then. I started to understand, you know, much more profoundly about. What what criminal transgression you know what what it's all about and why it happens. So I like to think I hope so. Anyway, my books got better and better with um, with some real solid knowledge behind them. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah, it makes a difference. I I've seen that. I I, I sometimes cringe to look back at some of my earlier books. I because I, mm. I I know that I was not that good. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I wasn't. I, not about you. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wasn't. <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't that good either. I really wasn't. I, I sort of, um, you know, I just, I just thought, well, if it's a story, it should be all right. But what I didn't realise is just how many sources there are, mm -hmm. and how they could all be dodgy ones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, actually, a very strange thing happened. A really interesting thing um, when I was still lecturing part-time at Hull University. Um, I taught a creative writing class, and it's while I was writing a book, I forgot, I can't remember which book it was, but I asked the class about themselves. I was just meeting them, really, and this guy said he was a doctor, and he said, I said, tell me a bit about yourself. He said, oh, um, actually, I was the last doctor to treat one of the craze. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I said, come and see me at coffee time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Because, you know, uh, I'm sure you're aware, aren't you? That, oh, um, the Crate Twins, yeah. In Britain, people are just rabid for stories about the craze. Yeah. Uh, so that um, that was a real turning point, actually, because speaking to him, I thought, good Lord, it, it is possible to still find people who are part of these these great stories. You know, they're still around. Nobody had ever spoken to him before about it. It's the super important thing. Um, mm. Even nowadays with the Internet and all this, you know, web stuff, um, it's so important to talk to people that were involved and part mm. of the crime to get that first source. Primary source is a major, major sure. step. Absolutely. I think probably one of my best ones was when I, um, I was researching um, an unsolved murder not far from me uh, on the North Lincolnshire, not far from the coast, North Lincolnshire, Way back, 1969 he was, an old man had been um, murdered by two intruders. He was, a, he was an antiques collector. Anyway, I, I, I advertised. And sure enough, I got a letter from a retired police officer. And he said, ah, you know, the Stevenson case. He said, I sat in the ambulance with him and I took his dying declaration. You know, so I thought, wow, mm. gift from God for a crime writer. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I went to interview him, you know, and he told me all about it. It's still, it's still unsolved. It's, um, it, it's a really cold case. It's, you know, it's so cold, it's Arctic. And um, <laughs> I don't think we'll ever, we'll ever sort that one out. Does that, does that worry you? But when you get into, um, the, you know, does it, does it, do you get too involved in sometimes when you're, when you're involved in a crime like that that's unsolved? Oh, Alan. <laughs> Um, I take it you're familiar with Michelle McNamara. Yes. <laughs> That's me. Oh. Um, so um, it, it depends what case, but if, if, if there's something that really grabs me, uh, it'll be a touch of the Michelle McNamara's. Um, and I, I do have... The answer to your question is yes. Um, partly because... I always like to try to get to the crime scenes and spend quite a bit of time there, the murder scenes, if I can. Um, and what happened, the, the one case I would really say yes to, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm still, um, you know, I'm still at some point I'm going to write about this. It was way back in 1926, and it was, uh, it's one of these cases you have, you know, where... Um, you, you, you're convinced that an innocent person was hanged. You know those, you know those cases? Yeah. And although it's a long time ago, I, I, I really got involved in it. I still am. And it was from my hometown. It happened in Leeds. Um, and, you know, one day um, it's going to be in print. I've written about it briefly, but what happened was I, I managed to get hold of the, um, the police records. And so, um, you know, I now, now know so much about it and some of the things I know about it I don't think are known by anybody else uh, I've never been in print and so on so uh, I, I, I'm convinced that uh, you know uh, an innocent woman went to the noose there I know that's happened many many times uh, but that one in particular you know to say yes to your question that one is really near my heart because um, she was born, actually, just a couple of streets away from where my mother was born. So um, I had a real um, connection to the story. And um, it was all complicated as well, because it took place in 1926 when there was a general strike in Britain. Uh, so it was eclipsed, really, in the papers, rather. You know, there were some reports, but... Um, it sort of went unnoticed, really, because there was so much trouble in the streets at the time. Um, but, yeah, the answer's a big yes to that question, Alan. <laughs> I do get involved. I get really involved. And, um, you know, I'm a terrier with a bone. Um, and actually, that particular story has been on BBC TV. And I, I, I did some help. You'll see my name there as an archivist. And I Ooh. did, uh, you know, I did help them with 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 some some material, but um, but it's still um, it's still something I, I am going to write about. I was going to say you should bring it to that show, Murder Mystery in My Family. You know. Yeah, that's it. It's been on there. Oh, yeah. it has. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, if you look at that, you'll see my name just down as an archivist. But what happened with that was they uh, they didn't film my. I, I was involved, you know, and they, they did. Um, they filmed me doing a particular scene in Leeds, and then they didn't use it because it was replicating the same uh, thing that someone else had dealt with. So in the end, I was I was just helping them with with archives. But yeah. there's so much more to say about it. I know there are a thousand. There are a thousand cold cases like this. I know there are. You know, they're happening all the time. But to an individual writer, when it gets hold of you, you really do get the Michelle McNamara's. I understand exactly what happened to her, how she was drowning in paper, wasn't she, for the um, <coughs> the Golden State Killer. <coughs> she was. She was. She was. You know, it was stopping her from sleeping at night and um, oh I understand mm -hmm. that obsession completely <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah yeah oh so did they find it safe or unsafe the uh, conviction <laughs> they found it safe the reason why oh. they found it the, re the reason why they found it safe was that um, they didn't have the complete records um, what it is in a nutshell the man uh, that I think was well the police thought was the number one suspect um, didn't figure in the you know the TV uh, investigation right he was mentioned briefly but there was no mention of him being a major suspect I know that he was a major suspect I've got the evidence so that's yeah. the um, that opens up my angle on it you know um, yeah. chances are he went to Canada I think uh oh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Might yeah. be a neighbor. Yeah. Under an assumed name. <laughs> <laughs> He's a radio host. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he disappears, like so many of them. But yeah, um, yeah. the other thing is, as well, you know, I have to mention, I'm so obsessed. Um, I've written a novel as well that is based on this. So um, I just have to watch this space, really, Alan, because it's with my agent. And mm. the agents had not been doing anything for over a year since COVID struck. So, um, you know, the novel was sort out. of, it was just about to drop on the publisher's desk and COVID came along. So wow. I'm still waiting on that one. My agent's still, uh, still looking for that, doing something with it. Get you, on your agent. <laughs> do you prefer writing uh, true crime or, or, or uh, did you want to go more into fiction? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always I've always written fiction, um, yep. and uh, mostly short stories when I was younger. Uh, if you're on radio, uh, lots of anthologies and things. I've written a couple of crime novels. They're just um, e-books, um, yeah. and then uh, then I oh, I've written westerns, of course. I told you that, didn't I? Yeah, Did I tell that's you that? right. Yeah, I've written I've written nine westerns. Wow. Um, yeah, I've written three under my name, but they were e-books, I think. And then six, you know, straightforward ones. Actually, I mean, I always joke with, you know, my friends in uh, Montana. They sort of laugh at myself, really, because they're, 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 they're Brits' westerns, you see. I say, yeah. oh, they're, they're an Englishman's western, I tell them. <laughs> 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 they, they, you know, think of cream bagels. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, if there are cow punchers, they, they don't often punch cows. They're usually shooting people. Um, yeah. So it's very much, it's very much the westerns. I'm not, I, I'm not writing them anymore because the publishers folded now. But um, I, love it. I, love, I love writing them. I love writing them. I've just written yeah. a young, ad, young adult western. So that'll be, wow. that'll be looking for a publisher now. Well, you know they they do well in places because I know. Um, I've got another interview with someone I think next week that writes westerns. Certain yeah. certain people do fairly well with with their western writing. Yeah, they um, do. And, but it's and, very marginal, it, isn't it? It's it very is. Marginal. Yeah, yeah. You're I right. Mean, you yeah. Know, yeah. You, you know, it's uh, and it, and it's very very tough for a Brit to uh, to be convincing in these things. Well, uh, vegetarian <laughs> Brit. <laughs> vegetarian Brit's even worse. I can only think of one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> re recent, uh, recent British writer who succeeded um, is so rare um, yeah. because you know when you got people like Heidson around and you know they, oh, I mean there was some fun, there's wonderful Western writing around and um, you, you know you, you can't compete with it if you don't if you don't exist within the culture 
So, right, you know, right. I yeah, often you, you'd have of, to come. Yeah. I, it, it, it's a it's a it's a boy's. I, I, I let my boy's imagination go if I write a western. Right, right, and you'd have to really come and and you know go to Texas oh, yeah. or something oh, yeah. and live there for a while and kind of kind of oh, you absorb would. the way you know. Everything. You would. And, uh, you would. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, because normally the Brits like me. I mean, one of the first Western writers I ever read was a librarian from Chesterfield. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm now in that category. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we all do what we can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like a boys' club. Um, yeah. So yeah. you can't really join the, uh, you know, the fictioneers, uh, the Western fictioneers. You, can't, you wouldn't be eligible to join them because you've never really... Done any branding or, you know, rounded up any any rough steers? So it's no good. You're sitting in an office in Lincolnshire. It's not good enough. Yeah. But um, yeah. no, the but the but the true crime really has taken over in my writing because I I uh, you'll probably see on Amazon that it'll be about three three years we've been out. I started writing books with um, an ex detective, and we've done uh, we're just doing our fifth now. Um, we've done some crime reference books, uh, and they're doing really well. Um, I think they're doing well, uh, you know, everywhere that whenever, whenever people are writing crime fiction, you know, that's our market really for crime fiction writers and fiction readers, uh, and true crime readers, of course, because, um, you know, there's, 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 well, the best way to explain it is, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but certainly here. There's a kind of a middle ground in the readership that, say you want to write uh, a contemporary crime novel and you need to get all the facts right, um, you've got law books and you've got criminology books and they're very serious and scholarly and dense and full of footnotes and strange, difficult language. Uh, and then there's this, this, you know, there's this gap on the shelf, if you like, or there's a, there's a, there's a grey area. So we, we, we went for that, because he was a detective, he was a London detective, with Stuart, and uh, all I've got, the only thing I can offer is uh, I know about prisons, uh, but I'm not a lawyer, you know, uh, I'm an amateur crime historian, um, but put the two of us together, and we're really doing well with, with the books, you'll see them on Amazon, that we're really pleased uh, that they're finding so many readers. So we, we've just mm. done, um, the fifth one's just about to go through, I think, now. Uh, mm. And that's been brilliant. And that's made me, you know, that's confirmed my main writing identity at the moment as a true crime writer, despite all these other things I do. That's confirmed the fact, you know, that it's, it's my central interest, yeah. and I'll probably do more. I'm always planning a new one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you always have to be, because um, you, you keep going, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't shut it off. Um, but, you know, this, this um, murder in mind, you, you really kind of focus on Yorkshire and Peter yes. Sutcliffe, right? That's and, it. And that. Yeah. That's an interesting... Peter Sutcliffe is, is you know, quite the, um, quite the known uh, killer, you know, mm. the Yorkshire Ripper uh, oh, throughout yeah. the world. Yeah. Um, well, what of was course, your he thoughts figures. on him? He figures in it, you know, he figures in it. But there's such a huge literature on him anyway. But um, I, I come from Leeds, as I said, so, and I've worked in West Yorkshire, so I, I know just about all the crime scenes you can imagine from the Yorkshire Ripper. You know, I've walked past them every morning, uh, played football on them, you name it, I've, I, I know those. And um, one of his victims was a woman from the village where I was brought up. So I did have some, you know, some, some personal uh, recollections. And, um, I mean, one, one typical... I could talk to you for hours, but one, one very typical one is um, there's a place <clears throat> when, when he was, you know, the usual trajectory of this type of killer, you know, the, you're starting off with voyeurism and then masturbation over the uh, corpse, um, you know, that usual trajectory, stealing underwear from the washing line, uh, ma mainly the phase of voyeurism. And um, there's a, a big area of Leeds called Soldiers Field, which is... Um, where a lot of the sport goes on, you know, cricket, soccer, tennis, you name it. It's a big sport area. And uh, one of his first 
attacks and victims was was on the edge of this um, soldier's field. And um, when I was young and fit, uh, I used to play soccer. I used to be a winger, you know, the fast bloke on the wing. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was right next to a pitch where we played this crime scene. Oh. And, um, uh, you know, it was more less contemporary. In other words, I think I was... I think I was. Ju- I think I just moved away from Leeds, as um, as it sort of hotted up, you know, and the Ripper tape. You, you know about the Ripper tape, don't you? I, a little bit, not as much. Yeah. I, 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 no, yeah. I ah, don't well, know. Let me maybe, explain. Maybe, yeah. yeah, there was um, the, one of the biggest things in the Yorkshire Ripper story. You'll find masses of information on it. Really, was that um, someone produced a tape which was ostensibly the voice of the Ripper. And it was in a Geordie accent, in other words, Tyneside, Newcastle. Right. Uh, Tyneside accent, a very distinctive British accent. Uh, now, so therefore, the West Yorkshire police were then convinced this tape was genuine. And they broadcast it everywhere, supermarkets, cinemas. The whole country, the whole country knew this Geordie voice on this Ripper tape. So what the um, the police leading the team after Sutcliffe did was take it to the experts. Took this tape to the experts, uh, the dialect experts. Now, as it happens by sheer chance, you know, when I when I finished my first degree, which was in Wales, um, I did a, an MA degree in uh, dialectology at the University of Leeds. And uh, my tutor was a man called Stanley Ellis. Now, Stanley Ellis was one of the two experts that analysed the Ripper tape. And they, um, he, he's so good, he was so talented, this <laughs> Stanley Ellis. He not only said that it was a genuine Wearside, it was from, it was, it was a Wearside voice, you know, not Tyneside, that the River Tyne and the River Weir, uh, both up in Northumberland, and uh, he pinpointed it to Wearside. Not only did he pinpoint the voice to Wearside, but he gave the town, the small town that this voice would be from. And he was right. Hmm. Um, but, unfortunately, it was a hoax. Oh. <laughs> and, of course, the real Yorkshire Ripper was busy slaughtering other young women while this was going on, and of course then the uh, the uh, leading detectives in the case were absolutely um, disgraced, you know, by, by, by... I mean, it wasn't the dialect expert's fault. He just told them it was where the voice was from. That's all Stanley Ellis did, you know. But right. the leading detectives le- did a leap of logic and assumed that because, you know, that that voice was the Ripper. And it wasn't. It was a man called John Humble, who was much later arrested. He's now died. And, of course, John Humble was responsible for, I think, four deaths, really, by making that stupid tape. Uh, Mm. But anyway, Stanley Ellis was my tutor uh, when I did my dialectology degree. And, um, you know, I remember a lot about him, and I remember how brilliant he was. He was quite a national figure at the time, because he used to be on radio and TV. Uh, you know, on the sort of entertaining language side. You know, he was really good on, you know, grammar, linguistics. People used to send questions, you know, about the language. So he was an incredible guy. He should be better known, Stanley Ellis. Should be better known. No, yeah, but things like that tend to uh, not be as popular as something like Kim Kardashian, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's a crime. There's a crime. Yeah, there, there's a crime. Are we, you know, are we going to talk about, you know, <laughs> Prince Harry and his wife? And, you know, people just get carried away with things that are not really yeah, they do. getting they them do. anything. You know what I'm saying? They don't get, yeah. you know, they're not achieving anything from that. It's just sort of, that, mm. which is fine, but you've kind of got to have both. But there seems yeah. to be a lack of, uh, I don't know, it's just a lack of wanting to, 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 Get oneself better, you know. Uh. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is, yeah. And, and there's not much of a critical attitude around either when it comes to media. This brings us back to true crime. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm... Oh, it does. I'm really interested in the theory. One of my big interests is in the theory behind it. You know, the psychology. And so, um, about... Would it be about three years ago? Not long before the COVID. I did a lecture in Liverpool. Uh, It was a convention on um, Jack the Ripper studies. And um, I did a lecture on... um, Basically on... uh, you know, the kind of deviance and um, kind of the nature of transgression, and, you know, with a kind of a Freudian angle. And um, I've got a very strong interest in the German, you know, the Middle European angle on true crime, criminology. Very mm. interested in that. Um, I've always read a lot of Middle European, you know, particularly Viennese and Berlin, it stemmed from when I did my doctorate and I had to study 1930s Berlin. It started there because um, Christopher Isherwood, when he lived in Berlin, um, there was an institute in Berlin run by Magnus Hirschfeld. Uh, and it was, a, it was for the study of sexology. It was, you know what Berlin was like in the 30s, you know, cabaret, think yeah. all that. Well, there was an institute for sexual studies by this, run by this guy Hirschfeld. And... This was the era, of course, during the Weimar Republic, when some of the most significant serial killers emerged. Uh, cannibals, some of them. Absolutely horrendous killers. And um, I got particularly interested in that with, with regard to understanding the psychology behind extremely cruel, deviant, violent crime. Um, I, I often looked at, say, for example... Uh, Stefan Georg, who um, you know wrote a lot about this, or um, Georg Grosch, the artist, uh, and there was a deep fascination with, with with serial killers. And strangely, coming back to the States, an awful lot of it, an awful lot of the thinking behind this, goes back to Edgar Allan Poe. Right. Uh, yeah, he wrote a wonderful piece. Do you know it? Called "The Man in the Crowd." Do you know that? I should know it. I should too. I the man in the crowd. Read it. If you don't know it, read it immediately for true crime understanding because he, God knows how Poe understood this. You know, with, with, with you, know, you know what a genius he was. I mean, he, yeah, he, he had no training, no academic foundations in this. But he, but he has this, he said, um, it's uh, this old man that he writes about, he says, this old man is the type and the genius of deep crime. Uh, and he 
he's, he's observing this man in the crowd, and he, he sort of explains this feeling, you know, that there's a, there's a type of deviance that, that only we understand, you know, a, a, a hundred years on we understand it. But Poe seemed to, seemed to grasp that these horrendous killers, like the ones in the 1930s, the, these German cases, you know, as they were going to be, I mean, I just can't believe Edgar Allan Poe. He was, a, he, was, he was such a visionary. Um, and when you look at those, you know, some of the great literature and the great art from the 30s, they, 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 they can see they stem from this. There's a, one of the greatest novels ever written, The Man Without Qualities, by Robert Musil, um, has, a, has a character in it called Moosebrugger. And he's a, he's, a, he's a horrible, sadistic killer. And Robert Musil... Uh, writes him in as this Poe-like figure. No one understands him, but he has this charisma, and and it's like it's like a profile of every serial killer you've read about. And this is this is Robert Musil writing in the 1930s. It's wonderful mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm going that? on a bit. No, but I was just no. wondering because I just I've just been uh, looking into Fritz Harman. Oh yeah, um, yeah, right, He's one and, of them. and that. Yeah, the love bites and and all that. What what exactly? Um, like, why is it? Why does it happen in certain areas like that? Why is, in for instance, Germany, you have so much of the blood, flesh eating, and sort of murders going mm. on in yeah. one area that it's not happening anywhere else? There's murders, exactly. there's serial yeah. killers. But what do you think it is about the that area? Is there something? Is it the water? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do wonder, don't you? I think a yeah. lot of it is down to the war, isn't it? Um, right. If you look at some of the some of the conditions, um, about ten years ago, it's an interesting little story. I picked up um, a photographic archive. I just got it in a, a flea market, and it was an archive from a um, a German Jewish family, and it went from the 1890s right through. I'm talking about the photograph, you know, the photographs themselves. Went right. from there through the Great War, so they were about. 120 pictures, all from the front line on the Italian front in the Great War, and then right up to uh, the States, the generation in the family that ended up in New England. And the pictures here, these are unpublished photographs, these are family photographs of the front line and of a, a you know, a, a Krankenhaus, a Felt, Felt Krankenhaus, uh, a little, a little hospital field hospital on the very front line and you look at some of these pictures and you think yes barbarity if you would you know the roots of the barbarity some well, some of the answers to your question Owen, i think right. are yeah. in the great war and the depth of depravity in the great war i mean there's um there are lots of good memoirs that touch on this you know um i don't think it's the full answer to your question but it, it's something i've always assumed is part of the answer god only knows where the you know what the specific circumstances were in the german cities but there's, there's another part of an answer there isn't there to your question i mean you've asked a yeah. huge question there but certainly <laughs> it is interesting why though isn't it because you know why cannibalism that's one that's yeah. a factor in it that's a factor in it um georg georg grosch the artist has um has two pictures um he did a book called um love in english it's um love above all and it's a book of sketches from the weimar republic and he has two pictures which he calls dimension two people and the first picture shows a man feeding booze to a a lady in some sort of little decadent room or something and the picture next to it is the woman's decapitated body on the bed and the guy with a huge knife uh, in the sort of food preparation part of the flat. And he just calls it two people. Um, <laughs> you know, and again, it comes from the, this culture you, you're asking your question about. What, what, yeah. You know, why? Uh, so maybe the war's part of it, but it's only a small part of it. It's interesting that Isherwood... Because, you know, Isherwood, when he was in Berlin, stayed in a um, working-class area called Nollendorfplatz. And so he met the everyday Germans. He stayed with um, 
uh, a land a working class family and a landlady with a sort of a, the cheapest one you know that he could afford. He was he was up there teaching English, very little money, and he met um, you know this this subculture, the homosexual subculture, the clubs. Uh, he went to the Hirschfeld Institute and so on, and he in his uh, memoirs detects this. He has a lot to say about. You know, this, we all go on about this underbelly, etc., etc. But what really was it, and why was it so barbarous? You know, so it, it's something I've often thought about because I'm interested in the uh, in the German writing. Um, mm. And the, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you a great place to look if you don't know them. Right, Philip Kerr, Philip Kerr's novels. I don't know whether you know them. Uh, mm. He died, I think, last year. Uh, I'd recommend these to anybody, Alan. Just anything by Philip Kerr. He had um, it's a long series of novels, and the the narrator is a German detective, and it goes through this period right up to the Cold War, and he's there's tons of, about this in in Philip Kerr. So there is a massive literature. Um, I don't know what the professional criminologists would uh, would give us their answer. Yeah. You know, they don't know anyway. But uh, <laughs> No, and we can't understand what they write, can we? It's too complicated. No, no it gets too deep. Full of um, long words. Yeah, yeah, I have to stop and look them up. <laughs> I th but I think it's fascinating how it, each area has its own type of community killing, you might say, or community, mm. how they deal with death. And it, yeah. even the resurgence in this... Um, true crime in the last 10 years of, of how it's so popular. There's networks and TV shows and books, and it's yeah. just crazy. And mm. people are fascinated with um, murder. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, why? Why? Yeah. That's what murder in mind is. Yeah, that's what I was partly trying to write about. But I could do with writing another one now because there's so much else to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... Uh, I mean, you know, there's, um, uh, there's a book... Um, called, um, oh, what's it called, The Fact of a Body. I don't know if you know it. Anyway, um, and a part of that book uh, is um, a profile of this character who, who kills a little boy. And um, in, the, in the book, it's by Alexandria uh, Lesnovich, I think. And in the book, he, um, the, the, the killer who's... Um, um, What's the polite way to say it? Educationally challenged? We used to say educationally subnormal when I was young. I think you can't say that, no, can you? But um, this character in the book, um, who's killed the boy, says, um, the, the police asked, you know, did you kill him? And, and this character called um, Langley, he says, um, I couldn't tell you. I'm still fumbling with it in my mind. It's like, I knew I did it, but... Um, but it's like something you read in the newspaper, mm. you know, and that's, it's, 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 the, it's the fantasy element. I think why we love true crime, if you get to the bottom of it, it's, it's something about our, our intrigue with the nature of, of, um, of a fantasy that's generated, we know not how, you know, if we knew the, how they were generated, I mean, Freud had his theories. But they're so difficult to follow. He talks about screen memories, creating false memories with your childhood memories. It's incredibly complicated. But he does have an answer if you're patient enough to, you know, if you've got the time to, to try to follow his thinking through. He does have an answer. But for ordinary folk like us who pick up a true crime magazine, um, you know, the, 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 this, this, this fantasy, it's like... I often used to see it with people that I'd worked with, you know, I did work with quite a number of uh, killers, and um, I often used to, when they were writing, I was there, you know, to help them with whatever writing projects in prison they wanted to do, whether it was their life story or, or storytelling or run a magazine, I, I was there to help them, just, you know, not like a teacher, but just as support for them. And I often had people who'd taken a life, you often found that they were cultivating every day. The, one, the ones who, I'm talking about the ones who had, you know, a degree of uh, remorse. Um, and they were cultivating every day 
some kind of feeding of, of, of an alternative reality that sustained them. If they could keep feeding that other reality, which was so for them, they would, wouldn't have to look at the, the reality in front of them. And so you'd get, you always had a clue from the things on the walls of the cell. As soon as you go in a cell, you look at what's on the wall. You look at the artwork, the postcards, drawings, doodling, letters, calendars, and it's there. It's the fantasy mm. there, you know. And again, yeah, I'm not right. a criminologist, but... <laughs> you no, but see in, a way, what... in a way, they're putting themselves in... The, the murderer that they did, they put them, put them as a third person, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm, mm, to create right. this new this new fantasy yeah. this new narrative they're going and that's they're going it. to live through but you want to talk about him that's the guy that killed that's it yeah that's right you know you know yeah um, yeah t.s Eliot, isn't it humankind cannot bear much reality right we do everything we can to avoid the reality that hits us in the face and for example one of the commonest things you found with murderers was religion was some kind of faux spirituality. Right. You, you get a lot of Buddhists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> funny how funny how murder creates Buddhists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they all find it, Jesus in prison. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's for the tea and biscuits in the chapel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I, just... yeah I know what you're saying, yeah. It's true. It's a complicated thing, isn't it? It certainly yeah. is. Well, what you did know, you what did you want people to get? Um, what, you know, when someone picks up Murder in Mind, for instance, and mm. they read it, um, what is it you yeah. kind of wanted them to take away from it? Like, other than the main, you know, when you're talking about Peter Sutcliffe or the yeah. Hangman and all that stuff. But besides the direct story, is there something you wanted people to to take away from Murder in Mind? Yes, yes. Um, I didn't do it in any any deep way I just did it as a bit of straight memoir um, but it's that um, is that we all encounter transgression and we know we, we most of us have some sort of notion of right and wrong when we're little probably yeah. maybe that's reducing every day the way the world is but uh, back in my world my generation we certainly did. And when there was a transgression, you know, the demarcations were clear then. And I'd like readers to sit back and consider how their experience compared with mine, because, you know, I'm an old man now. And um, I I'm writing about a time, such a long time ago, when, when law and crime, when transgression were very, very different things. You know, I, I was born just after the war, and um, most of my childhood memories have some kind of link with uh, people who'd come back from that war and um, or went away to another war, you know, because we were still fighting England, wasn't we? We were still fighting in the in the 1950s and so on. Uh, so it was an awful lot of duty demanded of us and an awful lot of uh, obedience demanded of us. And it was a culture that feared the law and feared the police. Uh, and there was instant retribution if there was a transgression. There was physical retribution. You know, I was I was hit every day at school, um, right. and uh, that's what the fifties were like. So I'd like people to take away, you know, um, some sort of insight into how the world has changed in that uh, fifty, sixty years there between that and the you know the millennium, if you like, uh, in terms of in terms of how we see transgression, any kind of transgression. Because, you know, as an historian, which I am mainly, most of my stuff relates to history, uh, I can see over the centuries just how, uh, you know, different circumstances have made the law more or less um, complacent with um, whatever rules at the time, you know, in terms of transgression. You know, is it a transgression to do so and so? I mean, just one quick reference that comes to mind that would be, what you hopefully you take away from murder in mind uh, would be that um, what you you know how you first receive how the individual first experiences the 
consequences of any transgression to look at that and think hard about that you know because it it, it has it can have immense consequences because it is sort of forming a moral center somehow sorry i'm going on i'm going no on. it's I'm interesting no, I talked to, uh, I know we, we had Peter Voronsky on, and he writes a lot mm -hmm. about that, and a lot, a lot about how the generation such as yours that uh, c come out of the war, who, whose parents were in the war, for instance, or, mm -hmm. or and things like that, um, the relationship between you and your father mm -hmm. uh, is much different than uh, a father and son today. Oh, massive, yeah. Yes, right? huge difference, huge difference. Yeah, he'd been uh, he'd been a boy sailor on the minesweepers, and uh, he told me practically nothing. He, he gave me about three facts. Uh, he claimed that um, he claimed that he'd bought Yvonne de Carlo a drink. Um, I don't know whether I believe him or not, uh, but um, you know, I, I got I got three facts. I think um, he thought um, he thought uh, Seattle was the most beautiful place on earth. Um, and he um, he didn't like being in Malta when it was bombed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's about all I got from his war. <laughs> right. But but you know but the, with regard to what I've been waffling on about, he and his I'm sorry to use this word because it's difficult for American people, but class. You know, in in British terms, you know what you know what class is like. Oh, yeah. What a burden yeah. class is to us. You know, I'm working class. I was born working class. My mum and dad were working class. And his his nature, you know, if you're talking about um, the, the morality and, 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 you know, where our sense of, uh, of what a crime is, where it comes from, he had a very, very firm view of right and wrong. And, yeah. uh, you know, Victorian, still essentially Victorian. Yeah. And he did it very, very rarely that he punished with his fist if he had to. And, you know, my grandparents had belts above their fire. And the belts were there just as a warning that you, you right behavior was required or the belt would come off the mantelpiece. Yeah. So it's Victorian English morality and it's right is right and wrong is wrong and there will be severe punishment. And, of course, I lived in a culture that had capital punishment and you could live you know oh, we had physical punishment we had kids being birched in Boston prisons so you know to modern people I don't know what young people now would think of them <laughs> well Britain in they're the having <laughs> they're having problems with a lot of things that our generations and even earlier did because they don't understand yeah. the concept mm. of growing up in that world. They don't understand because yeah. they're not there. They're here now. And That's they look it. and they go, well, how can you be like that? How could you have said that? How mm. could you have done this? And it's like, well, yeah, if absolutely. you only knew, you didn't live it. You don't understand mm. it until you're there. That's um, it. That's it. You know, yeah. so when it comes to things like that, there's just it, there's mm. too much of a distance, I think. Yeah, um, you know, But at least I, I hope... No, I was going to say, I grew up much the same as, as you did, atmosphere, oh, we right. had the belt, and uh, we'd have to go pick up the belt and bring it to my dad, and then he would mm -hmm. he would beat us with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, enlightened times, Owen. Yes. Enlightened times. Yes. <laughs> my dad used the stick so that uh, the stick would break, because he knew his uh, hand wouldn't. Oh, didn't have Oh, bullets, right. But. Oh, he was more <laughs> humane. He was more, he was more humane. humane. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know. No, it's, it's, uh, you yeah. know, they're, they're, they're very, they were very, very strange times. The fifties, weren't they? Uh, oh. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad they're so long ago. But I mean, you know, just to finish that point, you know, the murder in mind. Well, it, it's not meant to be anything deeply theoretical. Um, right. It's just a memoir element in it that touches on this. That's all. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, it, I would like to, at some point in the future, I might write a more extensive um, account of what I've been going on about um, but, uh, but there's plenty of criminology around You know, there's, there are enough academic criminologists to keep us busy already aren't there um, well there, there, there are but it's a good thing to have um, a little bit more of a um, down to earth explanation and a little mm. bit 
you know, easier to use examples and, and to talk to people. So yeah. there's room for that kind of a book because right yeah. now it's one, you know, it's one or the other. So mm. that's yeah. a good thing. Uh, it is, yeah. I mean, you can never have enough when it comes to explaining something as as, as really complex as as crime and law. I mean, when I first started writing, it, it all seemed so straightforward. You know, oh yes, well, you know, they, that happened in eighteen something or other. Everybody knew what the world was like. You knew what to expect if you did that or that. But then, when you look at historians and how they write about it today you get some absolutely egregious things go wrong, don't you? Um, you know, recently, for example, um, I'm not going to mention any detail because it might be... <laughs> it might get into trouble if you... <laughs> but, um, uh, <laughs> well, you know, there's, um, it was in the paper um, a little while ago, um, a writer called Naomi Wolf, um, mm-hmm. who's Oxford, I think. Oxford graduate. You probably, you probably read it. I, think it. I don't think the story was confined to our Sunday papers. But she completely misread criminal records in, uh, from the Victorian period and assumed that certain types of criminals had been executed when, in fact, they hadn't. And oh, it formed the uh, basis of a book, didn't it? Uh, uh, I'm sure it's on the net. I've, I've not yeah. looked, but probably all over the Internet, uh, because it was, a, you know, it was, a, it was a boo-boo that right, got her into right. trouble. But yeah. the point I make, I'm not picking on her, I'm just saying how easy it is to misread the past, even if you're a doctor philosophy or whatever she is it's still possible you know we all we all get things wrong um but it's such a complicated thing the history of crime and how it the 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 context of the shifting context of it alan that's what i'm going on about the shifting context well, that's the most important part right that the context because the things i think the ones that get it wrong the most are the ones that don't get into the time that they're writing about. That's it, exactly. That's right? it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Because then you, you miss... See, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly where, how, where my conversation with you started. When I said about the first writing I did, you know, I, that's what I wasn't doing. So, right. <laughs> so you know, uh, yeah. hopefully I just learned by... I just learned well, by you, doing... You know. Yeah, well, that's how we all gave forward. You know, the main thing yeah. is we're moving forward. We gain yeah. and we get better at what we do because of sure. what we've yeah. done. So I think that's, you know. Yeah. And you Are know, you... As, as a wonderful positive example of what's one of the reasons why you get real pleasure from writing true crime or crime history is when you get something down uh, an archive that's, you know, very human. And, it, uh, you know, it's not just a piece of paper. And when you were talking then, I was just remembering, I was once in an archive. Uh, it was actually, believe it or not, it was a book. I was writing a book on the Zulu War. And um, I was down in this archive, and I had this bunch of letters from a, uh, an English aristocratic mother to her son in Natal. And there were flowers, dry flowers. Uh, in his letters back to her, there were dried flowers and um, you know I thought there was a, a little tiny piece of Natal here and it's part of this story where you know the poor woman he, he went, he was only in his teens, he died of dysentery uh, so he went to fight the Zulus and died of dysentery uh, and there down an archive is a little, a little envelope with these tiny bits of flowers dried in them it's just one of those wonderful little moments you know, you know why you do what you do it's kind of human side of it all yeah um yeah so now do you run a website of your own do you have your own website or i I have a website yes yes i have a website um this this last year because of the covid uh, i I have a, a very nice friend who does the website for me and you know i send her information that i want her to put on it but because of this last year obviously as I say, with my agent not being able to do anything either, it's um, there's not much going. I mean, you know, I usually do lots of events. Well, this has certainly been a pleasure. I've got to wrap up the hour because the hour has come to a close. Um, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Murder in Mind was kind of what we were talking about. The yeah. um, author we're talking about is our guest, Stephen Wade. Thank you for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, ring again anytime. 
Uh, I shall be in my den, probably writing about Germans. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.